This is Digital Health Today, episode 58. So the doctors and nurses have been very supportive. We get calls frequently from the wards asking us to kind of go in even outside of research protocols and uh, apply the virtual reality. So we kind of call ourselves a VR consult service um, or maybe the virtualists and we go in and do this, this work. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Support for Digital Health Today comes from Optum. Optum tackles the biggest challenges in healthcare with innovative, data-driven solutions that help improve outcomes. Optum, how well gets done. Learn more at optum.com. Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to hear the leaders who are making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 58. If you follow the work being done in virtual reality and augmented reality, you probably have already seen the work being done by today's guests. I'm pleased to bring you the man himself, Dr. Brennan Spiegel. In this episode, Brennan gets real about the applications for virtual reality in healthcare and what's needed to drive adoption through the healthcare system and around the world. Brennan Spiegel is the Director of Health Services Research at Cedars-Sinai Health System in LA. He's also the Professor of Medicine and Public Health at UCLA and co-chair of the VRAR Association Digital Health Committee. He's published numerous best-selling medical textbooks and has more than 170 articles in peer-reviewed journals. His work has been featured in Bloomberg, Forbes, Huffington Post, NBC News, NPR, PBS, The Wall Street Journal, and now we're adding Digital Health Today to that esteemed list of media outlets. You can often find him at major conferences around the world, including HIMSS, Connected Health, Exponential Medicine, Health 2.0, and CES. Actually, it was CES where I heard him speak for the first time, and now he's actually founded a new conference called Virtual Medicine. That was held last week at Cedar sinai Medical Center, and it was the first international symposium dedicated to medical virtual reality. Tickets were sold out for this debut event, and if you weren't there, fear not, because in true pioneering fashion, Brennan worked with the team over at Samsung to get the event filmed and streamed live in 360. The recordings aren't up yet, last I checked, but when they are, you can grab your goggles and transport yourself back in time and over to L.A. and watch the event as if you were there. Actually, in some ways, it's even better than having been there. You have one of the best seats in the house. It's like you're actually on stage with the speakers and having a conversation with them, and you can also turn around from that position there on the stage where the camera was placed and view the whole audience get an entirely different perspective on the room. You can find a link on the show notes for this episode or go directly to virtualmedicine.health to find out more. One of the sponsors for the conference is the team over at Dot Health, which also happens to be one of our sponsors, and that's how they got that cool domain name, virtualmedicine.health. Check them out over there, and if you want to get one of those domain names yourself, you can get in touch with Jen Landon or Sedonia Swarm of the Dot Health team. You can find them at get.health, that's G-E-T dot health, and they'll hook you up where you can DM me on Twitter and I can put you in touch. Get all the show notes to everything we discuss by visiting the website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 58. Please take a minute to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and take a minute to leave a review. It helps to share what we're doing here and it creates good karma. Now let's get to it. Here's the interview with Dr. Brennan Spiegel. Brennan, thanks very much for joining me and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Brennan, the first time I heard you speak was at CES in 2017. It was in Vegas, as it always is. And your talk really made a huge impact on me, as I'm sure it did to many people in the audience. It was the Digital Health Summit there. You described hospital rooms as biopsychosocial jail cells, which is a really powerful term. And it's something that I've only heard coming 
in, in talks that I've heard you give. Can you give us some insight into what you mean by that and your observations on what patients experience when they're confined to hospitals? Yeah, it's, it is a little bit of a provocative term, a biopsychosocial jail cell, uh, but it really comes from a uh, the biopsychosocial model that you know Engel described many years ago, decades ago, and the biopsychosocial model is also the basis of quality of life measurement. So if you look at the World Health Organization uh, um, definition of health-related quality of life, they emphasize that in order to understand somebody's overall well-being, we have to understand them not only in terms of their physical functioning and their physical health but also their social well-being and their emotional, you know, cognitive, psychological well-being. So the term biopsychosocial acknowledges that global health requires an understanding of all three domains of health, the biological, the psychological, and the social. And when I use that to describe a hospital room, you know, I was referring to the fact that patients do not come to the hospital for uh, a place of rest. It's not a place of healing. Um, it's a place where people, you know, tragically can suffer. They suffer physically, they suffer emotionally, and they can suffer socially. Socially isolated, stigmatized by their illness. So if we're really going to improve the experience of our patients, we have to address not only their physiologic and biological needs, but also their psychological needs and their social needs. And, you know, the description of the hospital room as a jail cell is uh, maybe a little stark, but in essence, you know, our patients are in many ways confined to those rooms and suffering across multiple dimensions at the same time. So we have to just acknowledge that when thinking about how to improve the experience and outcomes of our patients who are hospitalized. So tell us about some of the work that you're doing using virtual reality to address those needs. Yeah, so virtual reality is, you know, as we all know by now, a technology that can uh, nudge the human brain in compelling and interesting ways. And uh, there's now, you know, decades of research from, you know, elite laboratories and elite universities across the world demonstrating that there are profound psychological effects of using immersive technologies like VR. But until recently, those technologies have really been limited to these laboratories because they've been too expensive or bulky uh, or just unscalable for something like a busy hospital. But really in the last few years, as we all know, the technology has miniaturized, it's become dramatically less expensive and yet has maintained as good or even better of a user experience. So we decided to try out virtual reality um, about three years ago now uh, just to see if we can help our patients sort of escape the four walls of that biopsychosocial jail cell and go on fantastical journeys, you know, whether it be uh, flying in a helicopter over fjords in Iceland or sitting on a Cirque du Soleil stage or whatever, uh, and see how it affects their experience, but also to measure it formally and rigorously and scientifically to see what is the impact on their pain, for example. Um, or other outcomes of care. So that's what we've been working on. So I know you've done a lot of research yourself and you've had your hand in, in a lot of research there at Cedar sinai Can you tell us about some of the studies and the results that have come about from that research? Yeah, we've taken sort of a progressive approach to understanding whether, when, and how to use virtual reality. 
for our patients. And by that, I mean, we started with just baby steps, uh, really just by doing pilot studies to see, you know, what do people feel about the technology? Um, do they like it? Is it uncomfortable? Uh, does it cause side effects? So we did qualitative research initially and published a paper a couple years ago now uh, describing our experiences. And largely they were positive that patients did enjoy the experience, uh, felt that it was effective for particularly for the pain that many were experiencing. But we also learned that some patients had questions about it. Some felt like this was uh, out of place uh, or they felt almost as if we were conducting psychological experiments. And these are typically uh, uh, patients who were not familiar with the technology. We also found that there was a digital divide where older individuals were a little less willing to use the technology than younger individuals. Uh, although what we have subsequently found is older individuals tend to have a better response and actually a, a more profound pain reduction than younger individuals among those who are willing to use it. Uh, and that may have to do with expectations around technology. You know, for some of our older patients above the digital divide who are not digital natives, when they first experience this, uh, in many cases, they, you know, they just can't believe what they're seeing. Uh, whereas younger people who are, you know, very comfortable in digital natives, uh, you know, they think it's, it's cool, but it's not necessarily, you know, mind-blowing. Um, so there are, there's a lot of that going on. And that was our first set of studies was just to understand that. But then we progressed and did a controlled trial. It was not a randomized controlled trial, which is really the gold standard, but um, a non-randomized controlled trial uh, where we once again demonstrated that the VR did help. It reduced pain by about 24% compared to a control condition. And then we followed that up with a proper prospective randomized controlled trial of uh, 120 patients, 60 per group. And that study has been completed. It's currently under peer review. So hopefully it'll find a, uh, a home to be published in soon. Uh, but the uh, the preview is that it, too, uh, demonstrated benefits. In fact, we saw up to 50% pain reduction initially, but then as patients continued to use it, the pain reduction dropped off a little bit, but it still was in the 20 to 25% reduction range after the course of uh, several days of use. So that's a big uh, kind of an overview of some of our work so far. That's really amazing. Great results there. I look forward to seeing that paper when it gets published. Uh, so pain reduction is one application. Can you tell us about some of the other exciting applications that you and your team have worked on or that you've seen developed? Yeah, I mean, it's really expansive at this point. If you look across the whole evolving field of clinical virtual reality, one use case that we've recently ex uh, sort of explored um, is blood pressure management. And uh, what we did, this was really a, a, a unique study where we worked with a local church. Um, it's called the Holman United Methodist Church. And uh, we were contacted by the pastor. His name is Kelvin Sauls. And he really is a leader in his community. He sees himself not just as a spiritual leader, but also as a health and wellness leader. And he recognized that his parishioners had a particularly high prevalence of high blood pressure, diabetes, and metabolic syndrome. Uh, it, he happens to run an African-American church, and uh, he believed that there are also cultural factors driving some of the high blood pressure that he observed, particularly around diet and salt in the diet. And he asked if we can come in and develop a culturally tailored uh, intervention to help reduce blood pressure in his parishioners. And we ended up working with the parishioners, um, you know, hand in glove to develop a virtual reality experience that uh, is designed to teach them about um, the African-American diet, 
uh, and in particular, where salt lives in that diet and how to recognize the amount of salt in different dishes and identify substitutes. And then they fly through their body and watch as the salt that they consume affects their brain, arteries, kidney, and heart. Uh, it's a very immersive, intense experience. And when they come out, they go out onto a beach and their own pastor comes on and provides almost like a sermon, uh, which they listen to, where they hear about um, you know, what they've learned and are challenged to make a decision about whether they're going to change their life and all of that happens in virtual reality. And we did a study of about 60 subjects uh, over the course of three months and found on average a seven-point drop in systolic blood pressure over the course of that, uh, of that experience. It wasn't a controlled study, so we'd like to reproduce it with a control group. But it was a very promising uh, and kind of powerful example of community-based uh, research using, in this case, you know, immersive uh, therapeutic technology. Brilliant. That's another great solution. So we've got pain, we've got treatment of uh, hypertension and high blood pressure. What other sorts of applications have you seen with VR? Yeah, I mean, there's so many now. Uh, it's hard to even enumerate uh, on, a, on a call like this. But, you know, uh, certainly there's been a lot of work with stroke rehabilitation, for example, and uh, rehab in general. Um, so, you know, the idea here is if, you know, and you may have watched the uh, Winter Olympics and seen some of these commercials that Samsung was playing where they demonstrated, uh, for example, uh, uh, one patient who had uh, a lower extremity amputation and had a prosthetic and was using a virtual reality headset to look down and see, you know, her own natural legs um, to help kind of re-engage her body and, and try to move more fluidly. Uh, and that's one of many examples. As I said, stroke rehabilitation is another, um, you know, optical training, uh, is another, certainly for uh, anxiety, phobia, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depression, uh, addiction. Uh, really, it's a powerful uh, behavior change modifier if it's used, you know, if it's used correctly. So that's just sort of just tip, you know, touching the iceberg, tip of the iceberg of what's available right now. Excellent. And you've touched on so many different areas where VR can be applied. And you've also talked about the, the research that has proved very promising results and the response from patients. But what about providers and payers? What's been their response about using VR as a course of therapy? Yeah, I'll start with the providers and then maybe we'll talk about the payers. Uh, the providers have been, in my experience, very supportive of this. Uh, they really get it. And, uh, you know, the reason that they get it is because we're so limited with Western medicine in many cases about, you know, for what we can do. Uh, for pain management, we're, we all know now we're in the middle of an opioid crisis, and that's because, you know, we use these medications, they, they work, but they're highly, you know, they, they're, people become dependent upon them, and then sometimes they stop working, or people even have worse pain as a result. So doctors know that we have, you know, only a limited armamentarium. And to see something like virtual reality make a profound difference in somebody's life, uh, which you really just need to see firsthand rather than listening to me talk about it, uh, to believe, which is why we've created a page with videos of our patients using virtual reality. Uh, when doctors see that, they say, oh, my God, like, why wouldn't we use this instead of opioids or at least to try to use it in, in conjunction with traditional pharmacotherapies? So the doctors and nurses have been very supportive. We get calls frequently from the wards asking us to kind of go in even outside of research protocols and uh, apply the virtual reality. So we kind of call ourselves a VR consult service 
um, or maybe the virtualists, and we go in and do this this work. Uh, so it's been very supportive. You know, um, on the payer side, it's a uh, you know that's more unclear at this point. Uh, I'm not aware yet that payers are paying for any uh, therapeutic virtual reality interventions. Uh, we have just recently completed a cost-effectiveness analysis evaluating the projected health economic benefits and ROI of developing a virtualist consult service for our, for our hospital system. And that paper has been accepted for publication. It will be published soon in the journal Digital Medicine. This is a brand new uh, important journal that uh, Eric Topol and Steve Steinhubble at uh, Scripps have uh, developed. It's a nature publication. And uh, it's an open access journal. So very soon uh, you can read our results about the health economic projections. But just as a preview, it doesn't take a whole lot for virtual reality to become cost effective if it can even just shave a little bit off the length of stay, for example, um, by or improve patient satisfaction, which there, which then gets uh, um, uh, tags to uh, Medicare reimbursement because our HCAP scores or patient satisfaction scores drive about 2% of Medicare reimbursement. And if something like uh, virtual reality can even tweak that score, that alone has um, economic value to hospitals. I'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I wanna tell you about one of our sponsors. Support for Digital Health Today comes from Optum, if you're a sifter of health data, a revealer of insights, or a believer of better days ahead, you'll be interested in the data-driven solutions Optum provides. Through insight and innovations, Optum is working hard to tackle the biggest challenges in healthcare. From pharmacy care services and healthcare operations to population health management and healthcare delivery, Optum uses data and analytics to power modern healthcare and help improve outcomes for all of us. Optum, how well gets done. Learn more at Optum.com. Now let's jump back to the conversation. Now you're based in California. There are a lot of great companies out there working on solutions uh, right in your area and all across the U.S. What are some of the developments that you've seen in other parts of the world? Are you seeing interest and uptake in other regions? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to have in two weeks uh, at Cedars. Uh, it's now a sold out uh, conference dedicated entirely to therapeutic virtual reality. And we have, I think, uh, about 12 different co uh, countries represented at this at this meeting in um, like almost every continent now. Uh, so we're seeing interest from all over the world. Um, you know, certainly in Europe, where there's always been an interest in finding cost-effective approaches uh, in lieu of traditional pharmacotherapies. That's a big part of um, the philosophy of healthcare delivery in the UK, uh, they've been very interested in understanding this technology. We're seeing interest from Canada, uh, certainly from a number of European countries, Switzerland in particular, they've been doing some terrific work out there, uh, particularly with, um, uh, with stroke rehabilitation. So there's a product called Mind Maze, I believe, that comes out of Switzerland uh, for stroke rehab. Uh, and increasingly, we're, we're getting interest from Asia as well. Uh, to see, you know, how it could be used in that in that part of the world. Yeah, I saw Mind Maze just the other day, actually, at the Wired Health Conference in London. And I also saw Keith Grimes, who I know is coming across. Mm -hmm. And I know he's really excited to come across to your conference. And I wanted to ask you about that, because this is the first year that you're running it. 
this podcast will go live afterwards. But uh, I guess next year you're going to have to to expand it to a larger facility so you can accommodate more guests. What are some of the things that people can expect this year, and how do you expect this conference to continue to grow and, and evolve in the years to come? Yeah, it's really been gratifying to see the response to this conference, which we put out you know nine months ago, and it's been nine months in the making, kind of like birthing a baby, I guess. And uh, it's uh, the due date is in two weeks. Um, and you know what the the purpose of this of this conference was not really meant to be a dog and pony show of all the latest and greatest hardware and software, uh, but rather to focus on some of the pragmatic issues that we're facing now that we have this technology. You know, how what are the best practices for administering virtual reality? How do we implement it, and uh, how do we integrate it? within the flow of care in a hospital or a clinic or an outpatient environment. Um, you know, what do patients uh, think of it and what are their experiences of using these technologies? Just how effective really is it? You know, when doesn't it work and why is it not working? You know, when should we be using it? So these are the pragmatic questions that doctors like me ask when we're evaluating any new technology or for that matter, biomedical innovation. So I've invited, you know, clinicians broadly who are really using technology in the clinical trenches and have some firsthand experience across a variety of different use cases. And Keith is a great example um, because he's been using it right there in his clinic and, you know, knows about when it works and when it doesn't work. I think it's important for any technology to hear from practitioners. You know, sometimes we kind of get caught in these Silicon Valley echo chambers where we're hearing a lot of um, promises, but sometimes those promises are coming from folks who have never touched a patient in their life or are using their experience in other industries like business, entertainment, uh, you know, banking or whatever uh, that really bear little resemblance to the overwhelming complexity, biopsychosocial complexity of taking care of patients. And that's what we're trying to accomplish with this conference is to try to blueprint what do we need to do next to uh, advance the science of therapeutic VR. So that's the 28th and 29th of March at Cedar sinai Medical Center in LA. Like I said, this podcast will go live after that event, but you'll be announcing dates for 2019, I'm sure, very soon. And uh, hopefully adding a few more tickets because there's obviously a lot of demand for what you're doing as this year has already been sold out. Uh, and people can find out more about it by visiting virtualmedicine.health. And we'll include a link to that and a few other things that we've mentioned on this podcast in the show notes for this episode. Now, before I jump into the lightning round, Brendan, there's one other item I want to ask you about, and that's your experience as a beatboxer. So it's definitely outside the clinical setting, but when I was Googling some of the videos and some of the talks that you've done a few weeks ago, even a few months ago, I found some, some videos that came up about you beatboxing in the car at uh, New Year's Eve, you did a great rendition with a trumpet. You would uh, have a video doing Smash Mouth with your daughter uh, in the car as well. Tell me about that. How did you discover your talent for beatboxing, and and where have you performed? Is this something people have to, <laughs> to find? You know, beatboxers just kind of know who they are, and usually they do this when they're away from other people, like in their car or in the shower. And I'm pretty sure there's some kind of like genetic uh, malformation of some sort that <laughs> provides this strange skill set. For people to uh, beep. Actually, there's been M uh, studies with functional MRIs of beatboxers uh, that actually demonstrates what parts of the brain are, are firing when people are doing this beatboxing. Beatboxers uh, hear the world world in rhythms. Uh, I hear things. I have, I think, a form of synesthesia that when I actually see things, I hear them. 
Um, and somehow that has come through since I was a kid that I just sort of hear rhythms all the time. And I ended up doing um, vocal percussion for our acapella group when I was in medical school, uh, we ended up going to uh, almost made to the finals of the national championship. So if you guys watched Pitch, uh, what's that? Uh, not the, Pitch Perfect. That movie? Pitch Perfect, yeah. Pitch Perfect um, is all about the international championship of collegiate acapella. And uh, we actually competed in that tournament. That's a real tournament. Uh, and we competed in that tournament in the, uh, when was that? The mid-90s. And I was the beatboxer. So ever since then, I I do break it out every so often, um, but yeah, that's, but not, not formally anymore. No, not really. Other than <laughs> in my car. <laughs> All right. Well, it's great to see. And uh, ever since I showed uh, the video of you and your daughter doing uh, Smash Mouth All-Star in the car. And now whenever I pick my daughter up from school, she wants me to play that on the way home. That's great. Well, you know what? I would do it over the phone, except it's just not going to transmit as well. You, you should, uh, <laughs> the phone no, won't do it. And actually, Jen Lannon actually asked for us to perform a rap because uh, I have laid down a few rhymes in my time. Is that right? Although, <laughs> I can back you <laughs> it was up. a long time ago. It was a long time ago. I can so, back you uh, up. Well, well, another time, another time. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe at Exponential Medicine or something like that. Or if I get to virtual medicine next year. So right. listen, I know we're coming up to the end of our time. There are just a few questions that I want to run through real quickly with you, Brennan. Can you tell me a, a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know what? It's not really related to technology, but my great-grandmother uh, spoke in Yiddish, and she said something in Yiddish that loosely translated into English is, when you've won to a fool, you've lost. And I think that works really well in life. So, uh, you know, if somebody's not making sense to you or you don't agree with what they're saying, uh, if you keep trying to dig in and fight it, it only makes things worse. Just move on. What advice do you have for others working to innovate in healthcare? I would say focus on the behavioral aspects of healthcare, particularly healthcare technology. There's, uh, developing the tech has become relatively trivial. The hard part is now understanding the behavioral science around it and developing this technologies with a very strong focus on, on behavioral science. What's a book that you recommend to our listeners? Uh, many, many books. Don't even know where to start. Um, probably like many of your guests, I love Outliers, one of my favorite books of all time by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, right now I'm reading a uh, uh, great book uh, on virtual reality um, by uh, um, Jaron Lanier. So he's sort of the father of virtual reality. And I'll have to remember the name of his book. It's, uh, it's The Dawn of the New Everything. That's what it is. The Dawn of the New Everything. Uh, really interesting um, sort of journey through the birth of virtual reality and its evolution. Uh, really outstanding book that I'm enjoying reading right now. And what's a piece of tech that you recommend people check out? I imagine it might have something to do with VR. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've talked about VR this whole time. Um, and VR has lots of arms and legs to it. So uh, we can get into the details, you know, at the conference. But, um, you know, I, I think a cool piece of tech that we really do use uh, is the AliveCore uh, EKG monitor. So this is, you know, an FDA cleared device that uh, you can fit in your wallet and you put your fingers on it and it will take an EKG reading on your smartphone and give you some feedback. So we actually do use that clinically and in a, uh, um, a research study that we're doing right now with partnership from uh, AliveCore. If I give you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology, how would you invest it? Uh, 
I again would focus on companies that um, have experience in clinical medicine, um, who have realistic goals about uh, whether, when, and how to use their technology, uh, and um, are using evidence-based medicine and behavioral science. So that's a, a little sort of vague answer, but the, I'm, put, I'm putting my money in companies that are um, uh, uh, that are taking this stuff seriously uh, and have use cases that are easy to describe that really matter to patients and who are working absolutely directly from patient with patients from the ground floor at the very initiation of their uh, of their development using design thinking and following kind of best practices for ideation and prototyping. Well, that's great. If you have any particular companies that you want to send across, I'll make sure I include those in the show notes as well to, to put some more focus on where you're putting your money and where you're putting your bets. Last thing is we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the American College of Gastroenterology is uh, uh, really one of the leading um, uh, organizations focused on improving uh, the health of Americans around GI conditions, in particular colon cancer and colon cancer screening. I happen to be a gastroenterologist, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and the American College supports that journal. And, and we're really focused on understanding how to improve colon cancer screening in the U.S. This is a preventable disease, and there's still too many young people who are dying of colon cancer uh, unnecessarily. And uh, if people get screened, then uh, we can save lives. So the American College of Gastro has some of really the best pro uh, programs in the world for raising awareness. Uh, we've worked with uh, Katie Couric, for example, and others to try and spread the word. So they're doing excellent work. Excellent. Well, thanks for nominating them. We'll include a link to that charity in the show notes so other people can uh, make a contribution as well if they feel led. How can people keep in touch and follow your work? Uh, probably the best way is to follow me on Twitter, uh, at Brennan Spiegel. We also have a new Twitter handle for our virtual reality program at Cedar sinai and for the conference. It's called at uh, Virtual Med Conf, C-O-N-F, which is uh, short for conference. So you can check those out. Um, and uh, that's probably the best way. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before I let you go? No, I appreciate what you're doing, and, and uh, thank you for having me on, on the podcast. It's great work, and look forward to uh, listening to some of your other guests in the future as well. Well, there you have it. That was Dr. Brennan Spiegel, virtual reality pioneer at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in L.A. I enjoyed that conversation with him, and I hope you did as well. One note that I have to make about the charity he nominated is that the American College of Gastroenterology does not accept donations. So instead, we made a donation to Stand Up for Cancer. I included a link to both organizations in the show notes and urge you to take a look at the good work that each one does. I also included a video of Jimmy Kimmel going in to get his first colonoscopy with Katie Couric. You know if there's any way to make that experience funny, you can count on Jimmy Kimmel to find it. You can get all the links and notes on our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 58. Please also be sure to check out the links to our sponsor, Optum. They're a new sponsor of this platform, so please help us let them know that we appreciate their support. You can learn more about their data solutions at Optum.com. Lots of great meetings coming up. You'll be able to find me at at least two of them. Let me know if I'll see you at Health Data Palooza in Washington, D.C. on April 26th and 27th. We talked about that event on our previous podcast with Rasu Shretza. I'll also be at the Health XL event being held in London the following week on May 2nd. Last I checked, there were a few tickets left for that event, so go online at HealthXL.com 
and apply to be a part of that event if you're interested. Thanks a lot for tuning in and for being a part of the digital health community. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at HealthTechDan and follow the show at DHealth Today. That's all for me for now. I'll speak with you soon on episode 59. And until next time, keep on innovating.